Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Shit from shit I stepped in. Look in the mirror and point my weapon. You so soft, you won't do nothing. Wanna be starting something? Got to be starting something. Wants to be starting something? Got to be starting something. Get low and take you under. Hang high and make it over. Shoot yourself in the middle when the pain is thunder. No, no, fuck that shit. Smoke a blunt, it's the best I get. I live my life with no regrets. And so I'm stuck with the pain in my life with no regrets And I'm stuck with the shame That's paranoia for ya Paranoid I didn't get over That's paranoia for ya That's why you're drunk not sober That's paranoia for ya Yep, he's dead <laughs> Wow, you're a real Sherlock homeboy there, Lieutenant Murray <laughs> Don't you say that name to me Don't you dare say that goddamn name to me Okay, didn't get her coffee this morning, I see. She's... So? Okay, then you that call. Just tell me my future. Yeah. You're gonna get hit by a black guy with one nut in two seconds. Don't delay. Call 1-800-CLEO and Leo. All calls routed through Taipei and Greater Southeast Asia. Some down home blue. I 
the casino Lost all the money, yeah what up, what up? This is Marlon, a.k.a. Sherlock Homeboy, back like I never left, fast as a statue, being nosy, minding my business. What up, Sherlock Homies, Sherlock Nation? Are you not entertained? If you like this episode anyways, please donate $2 or leave a five-star rating, which is like donating $100. It really is. Welcome to uh, Sherlock Homeboy. Can't think of the name. Sherlock, of course, this is the podcast. This is the my... Uh, Flag, shift, flag, I don't know what to say. This is my, uh, this is Sherlock's, uh, podcast. True crime. Uh, Sherlock is the character of all my, uh, all 14 of my podcasts. But this is the Sherlock podcast, and we do true crime around here. And today, we're going to be checking out Murder on Her Doorstep, the case of Sally Ann Bowman. So, uh, what are we going to say? Well, like always, you know me, it almost seems like I'd be victim blaming. I don't. I just be trying to, every time we watch true crime, our percentages should go down for, for the possibility of us being a victim. So, in actuality, I just be looking like, uh, I came up, you guys know that how I think, how crazy I am. Uh, I have learned by, uh, observing that most most victims are the accessory in their own victimhood. They're accessories in their own murder. And that really bothers me because that's something we can control. So it might seem like I'll be uh, victim blaming. No, I'm, I'm trying to empower us with the knowledge of more things are in our control than we think. So uh, murder on her doorstep. Of course, I'm going to be looking for uh, something she could have did differently because we can't stop crazy. But we can we can definitely stop helping. Uh, murder on her doorstep. The case of Sally Ann Bowman. He's described as a white man in his twenties or thirties, between about five foot nine and six foot. He's a proportionate build with short, dark hair. He is a detached, uh, arrogant monster who is a danger to the public. He's probably one of the most frightening individuals that I've had the opportunity to deal with in my police career. Bowman was born to parents Linda and Paul on September 11, 1987, and enjoyed a close and tight-knit relationship with her family. She was happy-go-lucky, incredibly friendly, and had a huge heart. She was also very mature for her age and wanted to work hard to support herself, so she made the big step to move out of the family home and live by herself in a rented room. Although she had moved out in her late teens, she still made sure to see her family as often as she could and she would never go too long without meeting up with them. Bright and bubbly, performing was a huge passion for Sally Ann, and she was accepted into the Brit School for Performing Arts. The prestigious school boasts among its alumni, 
actor Tom Holland and singers Adele and Amy Winehouse. For Sally Ann, getting into the selective and distinguished school was an incredible achievement and one more step towards her dreams. She also had a successful modelling career and took every opportunity that came her way. On the 24th of September 2005, 18-year-old Sally Ann was staying at her mother's house. She spent the day relaxing and then her sister Nicole rang and asked if she wanted to go out in the evening to celebrate the birthday of Nicole's best friend. At around 6pm, Sally Ann got ready and headed off. As she left, her mother told her she loved her and Sally Ann said she loved her back and walked off down the driveway. She met up with her sister and friends and headed to one of their favourite spots in the centre of town. She was caught on CCTV in the bar, laughing, dancing and enjoying her girls' night out. As the night started to wind down, she left with sister Nicole and walked out into Croydon Town Centre. Not long after, she began talking to her ex-boyfriend, Lewis Froston, on the phone. They had ended their relationship only a few weeks before and Sally Ann desperately wanted to see him. She got a taxi from her sister's back into Croydon, where Lewis met her in his car. He picked her up at around 2.20am and drove her to her house in Burnham Crescent, where she was renting a room. With the breakup being only a matter of weeks ago, emotions were still very raw and soon into their journey, the pair started arguing in the car. The argument went on until around 4.15am, and Sally Ann then got out of the car, and Lewis drove off. A witness said they were woken by the sound of a garbled noise, ending with a scream. The witness then got out of bed and looked out of their window, but couldn't see anything. The air was still, and there was no other noise coming from the street. They returned to the window about five minutes... I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I need to hear that again. Sorry, let's go back. ...to go out in the evening to celebrate the birthday of Nicole's best friend. At around 6pm, Sally Ann got ready and headed off. As she left, her mother told her she loved her, and Sally Ann said she loved her back and walked off down the driveway. She met up with her sister and friends and headed to one of their favourite spots in the centre of town. She was caught on CCTV in the bar, laughing, dancing and enjoying her girls' night out. As the night started to wind down, she left with sister Nicole and walked out into Croydon Town Centre. Not long after, she began talking to her ex-boyfriend, Lewis Froston, on the phone. They had ended their relationship only a few weeks before, and Sally Ann desperately wanted to see him. She got a taxi from her sister's back into Croydon, where Lewis met her in his car. He picked her up at around 2.20am and drove her to her house in Blenheim Crescent, where she was renting a room. With the breakup being only a matter of weeks ago, emotions were still very raw. And uh, that's still that's a booty call. That's a that's a booty call. Anytime somebody picks you up after the after you close the club down, that's two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that's a booty call. Into their journey, the pair started arguing in the car. 
The argument went on until around 4.15am and Sally Ann then got out of the car and Lewis drove off. A witness said they were woken by the sound of a garbled noise ending with a scream. The witness then got out of bed and looked out of their window but couldn't see anything. The air was still and there was no wow, other noise. Wow, wow, wait, 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 I know we missed something. That's that little shivery thing. I don't know how this case uh, ends up. <clears throat> uh, that's that. That's that chivalry. What you mean? I mean that's a small window. If her ex boyfriend let her out the car in front of her house, chivalry is watching her go inside. That that's chivalry. That's like holding. That's like hold, holding the door. And that's a small. That's small, but it's huge. That that's small, but it's huge. I tell you one thing. Uh, it's noticeable. For somebody who know it's noticeable, like as in watching, watching some a girl go inside, even from out outside your car, it's chivalry. It's the right thing to do if you're not walking her to her door. You take it a step farther, like as in yeah. So that's that's interesting. Uh, Cause sounds like she let he let her off in front of her uh, apartment. Let me do my commercial. $100 Tap Day, a special sponsor episode with a $100 donation. My address, PayPal, Venmo, and Cash App is in the information box. Tell me your favorite podcast of mine and your name and message will be read on air as the official sponsor of the episode. Coming from the street. They returned to the window about five minutes later and kept their lights off. They saw a man walking down the streets, but with no other noise and no one else around. They left the window and went back to bed. At around 6.30 that morning, a neighbour went outside and saw what they assumed were the legs of a mannequin protruding from behind a builder's skip. After going over to investigate, they were met with a truly horrific sight. It was the body of Sally Ann Bowman. Oh, no. Oh, no. She got murdered from the car to her, to her house? Wowzers. That mean <clears throat> if it wasn't the ex boyfriend, uh chivalry would have saved her life. Cause if you would have stood there and watched her like we you supposed to do, especially at four o'clock in the morning, uh she might be let's let's listen a little bit more. That's that's weird. She was partially clothed and it was clear that she was deceased. Police quickly arrived on scene and sealed off the area. The murder squad was called in and an investigation swiftly got underway. This would become the largest investigation London had ever seen. Linda Bowman heard knocking at her front door. She said she assumed it was Sally Ann and she had been locked out. As she opened the door, she was met with three police officers who asked her if she was Linda Bowman and if she knew Sally Ann. She explained that Sally Ann was her youngest daughter. The officer then told her the devastating news. Her beloved child had been found stabbed to death. She said, I just remember screaming, absolutely screaming. I just couldn't believe it. My whole world fell apart. 
Police then had to break the news to her sister, Michelle. Michelle said, I remember something leaving me that day, and it's never, ever come back. Within a few hours of the investigation being launched, her sister and mother were faced with a terrible ordeal of formally identifying her body. Michelle said, I remember going into the room, and for a split second I thought it wasn't her, because her hair was dark, and I just moved forward and saw her little button nose and her freckles, and that was it. Her devastated mother said she fell apart upon seeing Sally Ann's body, and Michelle was crying, please wake her up, Mom, please wake her up. Two days after Sally Ann had been found, her family made the incredibly difficult decision to find out more from the police. Stuart Cundy went to Linda's house with other officers to talk the family through it. What happened in the few minutes following Sally Ann getting out of Lewis's vehicle remains unclear, but what investigators were able to piece together was that Sally Ann was standing alone in the driveway of her house, less than 10 metres from the safety of her front door, when she was caught off guard in a frenzied and violent attack. Yeah, yeah, chivalry could have saved her life. Wow. Right in front of her house. Wow. During the attack, Sally Ann Bowman was stabbed at least seven times, with three of the stab wounds being so strong they passed through her body. There was also evidence to suggest that she had been sexually assaulted post-mortem. She was, I, I, she, think, I think she was wearing a skirt when she went out. By the looks of the films, I think she had uh, on the skirt. It also had been bitten several times, which had left DNA evidence. The peace and tranquility of this quiet suburban street had been shattered, and a sadistic, violent killer was now... that had to be premeditated. That had to be premeditated. But how did they know she wasn't already inside? Because it was premeditated. That bothers me how close she was to her house. And what bothers me more is, man, imagine being an ex-boyfriend. And uh, you don't even, you drive off while watching her go inside. This case is bothering me a little bit. Four o'clock in the morning in a nice neighborhood. And they get her before she from from the her basically from the sidewalk to her house at four o'clock in the morning. Hmm. That's almost you almost got to give the boyfriend a pass because that's almost because if he went and got her then he was gonna get her. Because 4 o'clock in the morning, catching her from her, that's, it, she was targeted. Damn, they had to be almost, like, how did they know she wasn't home? Well, let's, let's listen. Let's listen. No need to guess. Let's find out. Out on the run. Her ex-boyfriend, Lewis, was quickly identified as a potential suspect. As he and Sally Ann had fought the night she was killed, and he had been one of the last people to see her alive, 
this was soon made a focus of the investigation. No way. Of- the only thing is, like, as a, if he did that, he planned to get caught. And plus, he had a car. Why would he leave her there? That's just weird. And why would he do it at that house? That's weird. Let's just find out. That's weird. This is quickly mobilized and the hunt was now on to find Lewis Broston. He was soon located with his brother and a friend. He identified himself and was subsequently arrested and brought in for questioning. Over the next four days, the murder squad questioned Lewis and took samples of his DNA. He maintained he knew nothing about Sally Ann's murder until the police arrived to talk to him. His DNA sample was sent to be examined to try and ascertain whether or not it matched the DNA found on Sally Ann's body. It appeared to be an open and shut case, a lover's tiff that had ended in tragedy. But when the call came from the forensic science service, it was the news that nobody was anticipating. The DNA was a match, but not to Lewis Froston. It matched a disturbing sexual assault cold case from four years ago just a mile and a half away from where Sally Ann had been brutally murdered. Lewis was released from custody following this evidence. The police were now in a race against time to find a killer whose crimes were not only seemingly escalating, but was capable of striking again at any time. The cold case in question was extremely disturbing. Back in 2001, a woman was making a call in a telephone box by the car park of a Tesco store when a man approached her. He proceeded to expose himself and perform a sex act upon himself before leaving his DNA on the floor of the phone box. He then casually walked away across the car park, leaving his terrified victim extremely shaken. Although police had a DNA profile of the attacker, the case soon went cold. Officers who were now working on Sally Ann's case were faced with a horrifying question. If this person had attacked someone in 2001 and then murdered a young woman... You guys had a, a, a witness who could identify him. These cold cases be bothering me. Because as in this case, it's connected to, to crime. Like as in, if somebody gets away with something, man, geez, man, they, they're still getting away with it. So now one girl is dead. They already had a, a they already had his his DNA and they had a witness who who could identify him. He should have been caught. I know that's a lot of pressure to put now. That's all you need, homie. He should have been caught. And four years later, what had he done in the years in between? And how many more victims were there? And since he had now committed a brutal and frenzied murder, where and when would he strike next? It wasn't long before the worst fears of officers were realized. Less than an hour before Sally Ann Bowman was murdered on her doorstep, another woman had been attacked in nearby Sandersted Road. The woman in question had been standing on the street on her mobile phone when a man came up behind her. All he said was, I'm sorry, before proceeding to hit her. Officers were convinced that had the offender not been disturbed by a taxi coming down Sanderstead Road, the attack would have escalated. Before running away, he grabbed the victim's mobile phone. The call was still connected, and the person on the other end of the line had heard everything. What is most disturbing is that the screams of the victim did not get quieter, 
meaning the man who had attacked her and grabbed her phone was hiding nearby, watching what was happening. Thankfully, the taxi driver quickly got her into the car and drove her to hospital. The victim was able to provide a detailed description of the man who had assaulted her, and from this, the police were able to issue an EFIT of the man they were looking for. Didn't they did that on the first case? Police believe this was the same man who, less than 60 minutes later, would go on to murder Sally Ann Bowman. He's described as a white man in his 20s or 30s, between about 5 foot 9 and 6 foot. He's a proportionate build with short, dark hair. The EFIT was widely circulated, which led to many calls from the public. Despite the publicity of the EFIT and many desperate to help, the break officers desperately needed in the case didn't come. The murder squad regrouped and returned to the DNA sample that had been found on Sally Ann Bowman's body. They knew this profile held the key to unlocking the case and catching the man responsible for this disturbing crime spree. Investigators strongly suspected that the killer was local to the area and knew it well. Based on this, police decided... That makes it seem like he caught her randomly. Caught her randomly at 4 o'clock in the morning, being dropped off in front of her house. That's still weird. ...to conduct a DNA screening of the area. The task before them was huge. They had 6,000 addresses to go through, and every single one would need to disclose how many men lived at the property or were hey, staying... that's doable. 6,000, that's doable. ...being there the night Sally Ann Bowman was murdered. There were 4,000 men in the South Croydon area that fit the description. They knew the chance of the killer coming forward and offering his DNA was next to none, but they hoped that maybe a relative, such as a brother or father, might come forward, thus providing that crucial link. Despite the initial promise of the DNA testing centre, six months after the murder, the investigation was slowing down, and officers were running out of options. The people of South Croydon were living in fear, not knowing where the killer would strike next left them terrified. As the investigation was starting to stall, in March 2006, officers decided to change strategy and go back to the EFIT of the man who had attacked a woman less than an hour before Sally Ann was killed. The police were sure that this was the same man who had savagely murdered Sally Ann Bowman. They decided to release another EFIT of the man who had attacked the woman in the phone box four years earlier, the man with the same DNA as Sally Ann's killer. The victim from the phone box didn't complete an EFIT in the initial investigation from 2001 and officers were hopeful she would be able to add more to their investigation. Along with the release of the new EFIT, after consulting with Sally Ann's family, officers decided it was important for the public to understand the horrific nature of the murder and the level of violence that had been used. And so they held a press conference. People needed to know just how dangerous this man was. Over new leads would come in following this press conference they too would go nowhere. However, it wasn't long before the police finally got the break they were looking for, 20 miles away in Crawley. A man was in a pub watching the World Cup final between England and Trinidad and Tobago. He had had a significant amount of alcohol and began arguing with another man there. The argument spilled out onto the streets and CCTV caught the scuffle on camera. After the man shoved the other to the floor, a nearby police officer intervened, broke up the fight, and the man was arrested. 
He was soon identified as 35-year-old Mark Dixie and was taken in for questioning. His demeanour during the interview was strange. He was described as very tearful and incredibly emotional, despite the relatively minor nature of the offence. As is custom, his fingerprints and DNA were taken and he was released on police bail. Twelve days later, the news that everyone on the murder squad had been hoping for finally arrived. They had had a hit with the DNA from Sally Ann's body. It was a confirmed match for Mark Dixie. The police now had to find Dixie before another woman was attacked. Worryingly, he wasn't in the country. He had fled to the capital city of the Netherlands, Amsterdam, to avoid the manhunt. After three months there, he had an argument with his landlord and so returned to the United Kingdom. He went back to his job as a pub chef. When he was arrested for the fight in the streets, he had told the police that the address of the pub was where he was staying. Knowing how dangerous he was, and with the environment he worked in giving him access to knives, officers needed to get him out of the pub kitchen. As they were scouting the building to try and find a side entrance, Mark Dixie was coming out. Officers quickly apprehended him and brought him into custody. The arresting officer described putting his hand across Dixie's chest to stop him from running away. He said he could feel his heartbeat. His heartbeat never changed, and Dixie remained unusually calm, considering the nature of the offence he was being arrested for. The only comment he made when he was being booked into the custody suites was, I must have been mad to have done that. The following day, Mark Dixie was charged with the murder of Sally Ann Bowman. He remained silent as the charge sheet was read out. The family liaison officer, Graham Bannatyne, called Linda at around 9pm and asked if he could come to the family home. He was finally able to give the devastated Bowman family the news they had waited so long to hear. The man who had viciously taken Sally Ann's life was finally in custody. But who exactly was Mark Dixie? And how had he evaded capture for so long? Born in Streatham in 1970, he had a troubled childhood. His parents divorced when he was 18 months old. His mother remarried and Dixie took the name Mark James MacDonald, using his stepfather's surname. But throughout his life, he would use five known aliases, including Mark Philip Dixie, Mark James Down, Stephen MacDonald and Shane Turner. During his childhood, he was also moved to a children's home. He soon developed a long rap sheet, with his crimes taking place before it was mandatory to take a DNA sample upon arrest. In 1986, he robbed a woman at knife point in Stockwell and he was sentenced to six weeks in prison. A year later, he was convicted of robbery and in 1988, he received a two-year sentence for indecent assault and assault occasioning actual bodily harm. In 1989, he was convicted again of indecent exposure and received a sentence of 80 hours community service. Another conviction came in 1990 after he assaulted a police officer. To the horror of investigators, this criminal activity was not limited to the UK. In 1993, Dixie moved to Australia but soon ran into trouble there. He overstayed his visa and the crime spree started again. In 1998, a 19-year-old Thai student was alone in her house in Perth when she heard noises coming from her kitchen. After going to investigate, she came face to face with Mark Dixie, who was wearing a stocking pulled over his head. 
He was also armed with a knife. She was stabbed seven times and subsequently lost consciousness. He then proceeded to sexually assault her before stealing items from her house and fleeing. Thankfully, she survived the horrifying ordeal. The crimes didn't stop there. On New Year's Day in 1999, Dixie had spotted a young woman running along the road near Bunbury, a few hours south of Perth. He stopped his car ahead in the road before taking off his clothes and hiding in a bush. He then jumped out at the woman and asked her to perform a sex act. He received a fine of $750 three days later, and in April of 1999 he was deported from Australia. Following the formal charge for Sally Ann's murder, the work for investigators was just beginning. Over the next 18 months, the police painstakingly pieced together Dixie's movements to try and explain how and why he... So he was a sex offender in the, in the community. Because most of his charges are, are sexual-based since he was like 19. He had murdered 18-year-old Sally Ann. They needed the case to be watertight. They spoke to friends and those who knew him and learned that he had been out on the 24th of September celebrating his birthday, the same night he had killed Sally Ann. He went out with friends to a pub on Brighton Road, only a few hundred yards from where Sally Ann had lived on Blenheim Crescent. Birthdays were very important to Dixie and previous partners said he always expected something significant on his birthday. That night, his partner hadn't gone out with him. While in the pub, he called her, and when he returned to the table, his friend said he was like a completely different person. He was withdrawn, subdued, and clearly angry, and spent the rest of the evening drinking in excess and taking more drugs. When the pub closed, he and two female friends left for Avondale Road, where he was going to stay with them. This, too, was only a few hundred yards from Blenheim Crescent. The two women headed to bed in the early morning hours, but Mark Dixie didn't. Police believe that he left the property sometime between 2.30 and 3.30 a.m. Police also believe he took a knife with him as he left with the intent on finding a woman and attacking her. Investigators strongly suspect he was the person that attacked the woman on Sandersted Road and was frustrated when he failed to carry out his fantasy. After he ran away to nearby Blenheim Crescent, it appeared that Sally Ann Bowman was tragically in the wrong place at the wrong time. Officers theorised that after murdering Sally Ann, he didn't leave the area immediately, but instead hid to see if any neighbours would come out to investigate. No neighbour appeared and no lights in the houses went on. He didn't know, however, that a witness had heard Sally Ann scream and was looking out of her bedroom window while keeping her bedroom light off. Police believe the man she saw walking back in the direction where Sally Ann was found was Mark Dixie. If you want to support me and find out what makes me tick, please check out my autobiography, The Edica Marlon, The Cult of the Individual by Marlon Heavenly Seventh. everywhere books are available. Assuming nobody was watching him, he returned to the body and sexually assaulted her. He then went back to the property he was staying at with his two female friends and fell asleep on the sofa. The next morning, he acted as if nothing had happened. During their inquiries, officers reached out to Australian police, saying he was in custody, 
and to check if his DNA matched any of the crimes they had on record. It came back with a match to the attack on the Thai student in Perth in the 1990s. On the 5th of February 2008, Mark Dixie arrived at the Old Bailey Courthouse in London, and his detached and cold demeanour left the courtroom in shock. During the trial, the Thai woman from Perth gave evidence that Dixie had stabbed and raped her in 1998. He has uh, yet to... He, he did a lot more than that in, in between the time. ...be formally charged with this attack, though a DNA sample from her underwear has been matched to him. Dixie's defence was staggering. He admitted to being the rapist and leaving his DNA on Sally Ann's body. He said he had stumbled across what he thought was a drunk girl lying unconscious and took the opportunity to sexually assault her. He said he was not the man who had taken Sally Ann's life, but that the real killer was still out there. He never once offered an explanation for his appalling crimes. Before long, it was time for the jury to deliver their verdict. Mark Dixie was found guilty in a unanimous decision. He received a mandatory life sentence with a minimum term of 34 years. This is among one of the longest minimum terms to ever be given to a single murderer. This also means that before he can even be considered for parole, he will be at least 70 years old. He began his sentence at Belmarsh, a Category A prison. A Category A prison is reserved for highly dangerous offenders that pose great risk to the public. He was then moved to Long Larton Prison after other inmates threatened to attack him at Belmarsh. In 2014, it was revealed that he had been moved again to another prison, HMP Franklin. This too was for his own protection. DCI Chris LaPere, who was part of the murder squad, described him as one of the most frightening people he had ever encountered during his entire career. Due to the importance of DNA solving her daughter's case, Linda Bowman is a vocal advocate for a compulsory DNA database. She believes that had DNA not been found, Lewis Sproston may have been wrongfully convicted. Stuart Cundy, who led the investigation into Sally Ann Bowman's murder, agreed, saying, It is my opinion that a national DNA register, with all its appropriate safeguards, could have identified Sally Ann's murderer within 24 hours. Instead, it took nearly nine months before Mark Dixie was identified and almost two and a half years for justice to be done. Their calls for a DNA database were rejected by ministers and other politicians who argued it would be impractical as well as have negative implications for civil liberties. After years of denial, in January 2015, Mark Dixie finally confessed to murdering Sally Ann Bowman. In 2017, Mark Dixie was charged with yet more offences, and it was revealed that someone had been wrongfully convicted for some of his depraved crimes. In 2003, a Dutch national named Romano van der Dussen was convicted of raping three women in the Costa del Sol. He served 12 years in a Spanish prison and was routinely attacked by fellow inmates. Horrifyingly, the real rapist Mark Dixie was a free man. In June 2015, a Dutch newspaper reported that Dixie had confessed to one of the sexual assaults, but not the other two. Romano van der Dussen was eventually acquitted in 2016 and was present at Southwark Crown Court on November 24, 2017, as Mark Dixie was given two more life sentences for attacks on two other women in Croydon.
His crimes went back to when he was just 16 years old. He admitted to raping a woman in the deserted Wandle Road car park in 1987, leaving her bound and gagged as he set her car on fire. According to the judge, he was delighting in her evident fear. He ran away with her credit card details and later that night, he called her home phone to taunt and terrify her. He called again the following evening. The victim was so traumatised, she moved to the country to be as isolated as possible. He also confessed to hitting a woman over the head with a chef's iron and then dragging her to an isolated spot on Selsden Road in 2002 where he indecently assaulted her. The victim had been leaving messages on her boyfriend's phone as she walked home, but on the last message she could be heard screaming and dropping the phone. Dixie was only stopped when a concerned neighbour scared him off. He later used the victim's mobile phone that he had taken from the scene to call her boyfriend and brag about what he had done to her. The victim was left with multiple school fractures. Mark Dixie's cold-hearted and detached manner was evident. He said, it could have been worse. When Mark Dixie was convicted of these attacks in 2017, Chris LaPere, who had been on the team investigating Sally Ann's murder, said, I hope today's sentence will bring a small measure of closure to these two women. With the advancement in forensic technology, we were able to link Dixie to these offences and bring him to justice. Although the sentence will never bring their beloved daughter and sister back, the Bowman family were full of admiration for the police, especially their family liaison officer, Graham Bannatyne, who gave them invaluable support during the investigation. The damage caused by Mark Dixie is immeasurable. Lives have been shattered, women have lived in fear, an innocent man was wrongfully convicted, and a family are left without their beloved daughter and sister. Michelle, the sister of Sally Ann Bowman, said, You get that split second in the morning when you wake up and your life is perfect, everything's how you want it to be, and then bang, it's there and it hits you. Worrying to close your eyes, not knowing what you're going to see. Not knowing if you're going to see that Sally you remember, or that Sally you see from the pictures. And that fear goes through me every night when I go to sleep. The nightmares don't ever stop. There's not anything in this world that will ever make it better, because she will never come back. All right, y'all, that was it. A little short, but that was it. That dude was a monster. Uh, man, there's nothing really to take away from uh, this one. Man, uh, only thing that could have saved it was chivalry. And uh, that's not even how they do it in today's times. That, that's I have, I have nothing, man. That's just a sad story. Man, that's a sad story. I can't really, I can't, I, I can't even apply not going out after that late and all that. I don't even think that's justified to even attach to not going, staying out at bars until they close. I don't even think I can attach any of that to this case. That dude was, that dude truly was a monster.
Yeah, I got nothing, y'all. That's just a sad. That's just a sad story. That's just a sad story. He should have been caught. I guess I can say that. Uh, he should have been caught a long time ago. That's about all I got. Like as in, like as in, each crime, each crime like that is very important because they just continue until they get caught. So I guess that's he should have been caught. Okay, we we got to grab onto something, man. That this is just a sad story. He should have been caught a long time ago. He he was an official monster. Like as how did he make it that people knew? Like as he should have been caught a long time ago. Uh, thanks for supporting the Marlon Podcast Network. Two new episodes every day. Please check out my merch store. Link in the information box. My merch is my wardrobe. Yep, I'm selling the shirts off my back, the shoes off my feet, the pants off my ass. Own the piece of my personal life. I love those who love me. Take my DNA and frame me. <laughs> Catchphrase. Sounds like something serious. Well, then they should call us. No! Uh, hey, listen, can you look into your crystal ball and tell me my future, please? Oh, baby, I'm... You've got to find what you love. And that is as true for work as it is for your lovers. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life. And the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking and don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know when you find it. And like any great relationship, it just gets better and better as the years roll on. So keep looking. Don't settle. When I was 17, I read a quote that went something like, if you live each day as if it was your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. It made an impression on me. And since then, for the past 33 years, I've looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself, if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I am about to do today? And whenever the answer has been no- Come on, Kev, let's go! Okay, well, bye. See you tomorrow. And thusly, a woman's anatomical construction is fantastically adaptive to the needs of a... What's that word? Virginin. To the needs of a burgeoning human life. Stuff's not that good. Well, you could look up burgeoning. But we had already looked up prenatal and amniotic fluid, and it was clear we were barking up the wrong tree. Oh, working on your sex education, I see. Not sure you boys are old enough for this. Give it back, Wayne. You either fly, fly, or you fly, fly. Every try, try, you always lie, lie. Every female, every guy, guy. Don't try to escape and get high, high. Now I lay me down to sleep. What I did do not happen to me. It might seem like I'm rapping the beat. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. 
If I die before I wake, my apologies for heaven's sake. My inner space is out of space. Too bad it went down this way. Run DMC, then walk this way. Stare with the heaven on the hip hop beat. Staring at heaven even if I sleep. Wake up from death seven days a week. Consciousness is continuously. All I know is eternity. To be or not to be. The beat is feeling kind of deep to me. Is it you? It speak to me. Voices in my head play a symphony. Bach mixed with Tupac, Beethoven. I stay smoking. I'm really trying quick, but I stay smoking. I really want to hit, but I stay hoping. The day seems the same open. I really want to change. I hope you notice. Forgive me for my sins when I lose focus. Forgive you. I hope you're joking. Karma came back and stuck his nose in. What you chosen is the chosen. Don't ask me bye bye. Say goodbye bye. Don't ask me why.